0: What does working from the inside out mean to me? I think it means that what we feel is very, very important. It's not just what we can see on the outside, but it's what we can feel on the inside. I speak a lot in freedom-based training about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And intrinsic motivation is where you just want to do something because it feels good. And that's, I think, what our goal is with the horses. We want them to do the things we ask because they're intrinsically motivated, because they know that it's going to feel good. And I think that's what working from the inside out means to me. We might use extrinsic motivation to get there, but the end goal is that we do things because they feel good, and that's working from the inside out.
1: Welcome to Working from the Inside Out with your host, Ellie O'Brien from Phonese Equestrian Training. Come on a journey with me as I chat to some amazing horsey people from all around the world and maybe a few of my own tips too, as I expand my consciousness and challenge my beliefs and ultimately grow as a horse person and human being in general. (laughs) Welcome Elsa Sinclair, thank you so much for jumping on and having a chat with me, our second chat in fact, because I had a little bit of an oopsie with our first recording, Um, but I'm super excited to be chatting again, and I've been hanging out since... Uh, I met Elsa at Equidays in New Zealand last year and was super lucky to have her work with My Little Pony Chrome and it was fascinating to see such a different take on working with him in the moment and I'm sure we can have a little bit of a chat about that um, in our podcast today but I think maybe yeah that would be awesome. Maybe if we start off, if you haven't already heard of Elsa, I don't know what rock you have been hiding under, Um, but I have just been totally inspired by her um, movies and the question that she asked, which was a little bit different to most questions that we, um, I guess, see in the horse world. So uh, I think that I might hand it over to you here, Elsa, and you can dive in and tell us about that question and where it led you. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: I am thrilled to answer that. Um, It's great here to be chatting with you, Ellie, and uh, I loved meeting you and I loved meeting Chrome when I was there in New Zealand. It was actually my first trip to New Zealand. No, second trip to New Zealand, but... Ah really fresh for me to be in a different part of the world and and see that, you know, all of us horse people have similar wants and desires. We really want to have a good relationship with these animals and we all come about it in slightly different ways. Mm. So a little bit over eight years ago, I think, I'd have to go back and do the math, but I was um, teaching and one of my students asked me a really interesting question. She said, do you think horses want to be ridden? And at that point, I was a horse trainer. And I said, yeah, I think horses love being ridden. <laughs> and she said, no, I mean, like, what if they knew they had a choice? Would they still want to be ridden? And I said, well, I think they bring wild horses in off the range at older ages. And those horses really learn to enjoy being ridden. So, yeah, I think, I think so. And she said, but I mean, what if they knew they had a choice. Like they knew they had a choice the whole time. Mm. Would they still want to be ridden? And I thought, you know, I'm not sure anybody has ever asked that question and gotten an answer from a horse. And I thought, how would I even go about asking that question? Mm. And so I developed this idea for a project where I would get an older Mustang off the range and I would spend a year with that horse and I would have a couple of parameters such as um, food would always be available. It would never be gotten through me. It would always be available in the space. Mm. So I couldn't use food rewards. Um, I would never trap that horse between me and the fence. I would always be closer to the fence than the horse was. So they always had the ability to walk away from me. Mm. and I would not use any halters or ropes or flags or sticks or any of the common training tools. And I thought if you took an older Mustang that knew themselves and you took away all of those tools of control, they would have the ability to give you an honest answer about whether they felt good about being ridden or not. And, then I thought, well, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't know if I'm up to that. So I went around telling all of my horse trainer friends that somebody should do this project. And everybody laughed at me. And it became clear that none of my horse trainer friends were going to do this project. And if it was going to be done, I was going to have to do it myself. So um, long story short, I ended up dreaming about it and talking about it and thinking about it long enough that it came to happen. And a good friend of mine said, if you're going to do this project, we should film it. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. How do we do that? And so she helped me find a camera to buy and she helped me get set up. And actually she ended up um, coming over about once a month to film the progress of what was happening in the project. And, you know, I thought this was an interesting experiment. I thought that We'd play with this for a year, it would work or it wouldn't work. It would be kind of fun to watch the process. We'd learn some things, and then I'd go back to being a normal horse trainer. (laughs) But once (laughs) you know, you can't unknow. (laughs) And uh, that's not really what happened. It ended up being far more successful than I ever anticipated. And then when it was more successful than I anticipated, and i had more fun doing it than i anticipated. Mm-hmm. people started asking me to teach them what i'd done. and so it slowly developed into a whole method of training that i call freedom based training. and that's all i do now, which is kind of amazing to me.
1: it is incredible, isn't it? who who would who would have thought? <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
2: Wow. So, you know, from the beginning of this, I just want to make it really clear. I have a huge amount of respect for tons of different styles of training. I don't think everybody should do freedom-based training, but I will say the students who study freedom-based training with me say that their feel and their timing improves dramatically. And when you have better feel and timing with horses, you can take that into any kind of training method you want.
1: Yeah that's what I um found really beautiful about you is that there was no judgment of um of other ways of going about it or like you had to give up everything that you already know as well because I think sometimes that thought is so intimidating for people um, when they go into or or maybe even consider or have it suggested to them that they try something else I think they feel like they have to give up everything that they've spent a lifetime learning
2: Yeah. And I don't want anybody to have to give anything up. I want to add to the beauty and the quality of your life with your horses. And for some people taking away all the tools and seeing what's possible without the tools is actually really exciting. Um, And actually I, I, I'm amazed all the time that there are people that still show up and want to do this with me and, and people who've been studying this for years with me because it's really slow. I, I joke <laughs> it is the slowest possible way to train a horse, uh, but it's also really fun <laughs> Yeah,
1: I loved it um, when you mentioned at the start here about um, not ever putting the horse between yourself and a fence, and how you'll put the yourself on the fence. And I kind of had like a flashback to at equidays where I. Th- I think it may have been with the little herd of um, ponies that you were working with and one of them kind of like wiped you off along the fence line (laughs) like that's enough now.
2: Yeah, they will definitely use the fences to make it clear what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with. So if I am in the wrong place at the wrong time and I'm there for too long, they will use a bush or a fence to sort of wipe me off and and make it clear that I didn't have very good feel or timing in that moment.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Like I was just thinking as well as you were talking that, um, You know, I don't know if you have those ponies over in America, but they're kind of common here. The ones that wipe children off on fences or walk under trees that have very low branches.
2: (laughs) Yep, I grew up riding those ponies. (laughs) Yeah,
1: and it only just hit me now that um, (laughs) they were very good at communicating.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly it. And as we get older and more mature as horse trainers and horse riders, we learn how to not put ourselves in situations where we get wiped off like that. Mm. But really, we use our bridle or our halter or, you know, our tools to make sure that we don't get ourselves in that situation. And when you take away all the tools, I find that you have to sharpen your senses. You really have to become much more aware of what's about to happen so that you're in the right place at the right time.
1: Mm, Yeah. So shall we jump um, into that first movie a little bit and talk about the journey that that took you on and perhaps what you learned through it and how it changed what you did and, and where you finished up at the end of that movie without giving away too much.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it was a interesting journey because I had a vague outline of a plan that I wanted to do. And I honestly ran into the wall a lot with things that weren't possible that I thought would be possible Mm. because this horse had the ability to say no when I got it wrong. Mm. So I would say I was really successful right at the beginning. We developed a really nice bond. She was interested in me. Um, I was touching her within a couple of days. She really enjoyed it. Um, I I thought this is going to be great. This is going to be really lovely and easy. And then um, about the time when I started asking her to move around for me, mm. she made it really clear that how and when and where I asked her to move had a huge impact on whether she was going to say yes or no. And when she said no, she really had no problem with turning her butt and kicking at me oh. because nobody's ever taught her not to do that. Um, that seemed perfectly reasonable to her. So there were some hilarious moments where I would ask her to move over and she would spin her butt to kick at me. And the only thing I could do was sprint in the opposite direction (laughs) because I had no tools. I had no way of saying, no, don't kick at me. Um, I certainly could yell. But um, the point was that my job was to ask in a way that she wanted to say yes not ask in a way where she was likely to say no.
1: Mm.
2: And that was actually a pretty steep learning curve for me. Um, There was a hilarious week where I did a lot of sprinting in the opposite direction (laughs) because I got things wrong for a while. Um, And what it took is me learning how to break things down into smaller steps. Instead of saying, I want you to move over and I want you to move over now, I had to say, well, how would you feel about my hand on your side? And then really differentiate between, yeah, that's okay and, oh, that feels really good and I really like having your hand on my side there.
0: Mm. If you
2: can take them to a place where they really enjoy the touch, then when you add a little bit of pressure to it, they're much more likely to say yes than if they're only tolerating your touch before you add the pressure.
1: Mm, Because I guess if they're already kind of in a protective survival state, then they're going to get to reacting a whole heap quicker.
2: Yeah. And I know that sounds very obvious when I say it. And, you know, everybody's laughing at me for the fact that it took me a week to figure that out. Mm -hmm. But understanding what the difference is between what a horse looks like when they're tolerating, what it looks like when they're accepting and what it looks like when they're enjoying is actually something that I don't think we're really taught to read very well.
1: No, most
2: horse trainers get to the place of acceptance and we go, yeah, that's pretty good. Let's move on.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know that I totally, and and I would say it's 100% because of having tools, so you don't have to... You don't have to get to that place of them enjoying it because because you have the ability to pick up on a feel of the halter and maybe use your flag to to ask them to move over. But if you don't have that ability, then um, <laughs> then if they're not enjoying it, like you say, then <laughs> they they can have a very strong opinion. Yep.
2: Yeah. And interestingly, about three months into that first movie project, I got on Myrna and I sat on her for the first time and it was fine. She didn't say no to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But what was interesting is she was in what I would call a state of tolerance now. And I got off of her before she said no, before there were any problems, but she would not let me on her back again for another three months.
1: Wow. What do you think? So... Do you think you had to have that experience with her in that moment or looking back with what you know now, could you have set that up better so that it wouldn't have taken another three months to be able to um, have her say
2: yes to you being on her? Yes, absolutely. I know so much better now about how to set things up for success.
0: Mm. And
2: ultimately, I did have to fail in order to work that out. But um, in hindsight, I watched that movie and and I shudder sometimes. I think, oh, Elsa, come on, you're better than this. But (laughs) I wasn't at that point. No.
1: (laughs) Wow, you were just learning it was all new territory. Exactly.
2: So, you know, six months into the project, we were riding again. It was a really, really tough learning curve for me to get there. But then once I was there, it was really lovely. And we had a great time um, developing the writing skills. And ultimately, um, I had this idea of a grand finale where we were going to go to this wild remote beach where there's very few people and we were going to play in the ocean as our grand finale to the movie. And I thought when I came up with that idea, I was just dreaming and it would never really happen. But we actually got there. Wow that is just stunning yeah so um as I said ab- above and beyond anything I really expected to be able to do with that horse and uh it sort of launched me onto this whole career path that I never ever anticipated and
1: do you still have her now and how, how have like if you do how have things progressed in your relationship since since the end of the movie
2: So after the movie was finished, I was absolutely broke. I had uh, no money. So I ended up moving to the city where I could have um, a little bit more reliable access to work. Mm -hmm. And Myrna went out in the pasture and she got a year off where she just got to go be a horse and not do anything. And then once I was a little bit more financially secure, um, I brought her to the city with me. And I actually took her through all the stages of more dominant training. Because yeah. I thought if I were to die in a car accident, mm-hmm. I need this horse to be educated in a way that normal people can understand and appreciate.
1: Yeah, and interesting. And
2: so I taught her to wear a bridle. I taught her to wear a saddle. I taught her to have all of the equipment that every normal horse knows how to wear.
0: Yeah.
2: And it was amazing to me I mean when I the first time I put a saddle on with a girth she looked back and went oh yeah that's lovely and off (laughs) we went
1: (laughs) oh that is cool that is a total testament to the the work that you had done
2: yeah it really adding all of the the more dominant training was easy and very, very low stress for her. Mm, And then once I had done that, I spent about a year making sure that she was really comfortable with all of sort of more normal training. Um, we went back to doing a lot more stuff in freedom just because it's so fun and I love it. Yeah. So I still have her, but, uh, she's much more a pasture ornament again, because I am working on filming another movie currently. So, uh, me only gets to watch from the sidelines
1: (laughs) watch and give advice (laughs) (laughs) oh that is just super cool and so then that led you into so you're working on your third movie at the moment but after um timing wild uh was it at the end of last year you released your second movie
2: yes uh we did and The second movie was, um, it was sort of an interesting idea. A friend of mine who lives in Costa Rica said that it was a dream of hers to go across the country of Costa Rica on horseback.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And she looked at me and she said, do you want to do it with me? And I said, yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then we got talking about it. And she had taken my online course and she was really interested in freedom-based training and And I said, you know, one of the biggest questions I get when I'm doing freedom based training is how does this apply to a horse that is not a wild horse, a horse that maybe has been abused by people or has trauma? Um, How would you apply these theories to a horse that has had a bad experience with people instead of no experience with people like you had in the first movie? And I said, in theory, I think it works the same way, but I can't know for sure because I've never done it. Yeah. And so when my friend Andrea Wadey suggested we do this trip across Costa Rica, I said, what if we adopt two horses that really need a new start in life? Some horses maybe from an abusive background, and we do the trip across the country with them, training as we travel. So that they can go to new homes at the end of the journey and have a fresh start in life. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. Beautiful. Wow. So now, obviously, we could not do it in total freedom because we couldn't lose the horses running off into the jungle. Um, <laughs> we were crossing a country, so we did keep halters and lead ropes on them to make sure that... We didn't lose them, mm. but we set it up so that we tried to use our tools as little as possible, and we t- tried to use body language as much as we could. Mm.
1: And uh, I understand there was um a bit of like a what well, can you tell the story of when you got the
2: the horses that you that you got? <laughs> um, yes. So I was uh, up in Seattle in the United States, in Northwest Washington, where I live. And Andrea was in Costa Rica. She was doing all the prep, all of the preparations of, of things we would need for the movie, which meant she was left to buy the horses for us. We wanted to make sure we bought them in time for them to have food and get healthy before we went across the country. Yeah. So about six weeks before we were ready to leave. She went to the meat market, and she went to buy horses that were being sold for meat. Hmm. And she said it was one of the hardest things she's ever done, and she can not sure if she's ever can go back. But yeah. she was there, and she ended up bidding on um, a horse for me that uh, was really young and beautiful and um, she wasn't really sure why he was being sold for meat but she Hmm. won the bid and then after she won the bid the locals came up to her and said congratulations and please don't ever try and ride that horse he's very dangerous wow and so she called me up and she said oh Elsa I think I've made a terrible mistake (laughs) And I said, no, 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 it's not a mistake. It's just fine. He can be my horse and um, I don't need to ride him. You know, I'm happy to walk next to him across the country. Yes. If it happens that he would like me to ride him and that works out, that's great. But if he never wants to be ridden, I'm happy to walk the whole way. Mm. So... um That is how I got my horse for the trip. And then she ended up going to um, a different situation to get the horse that she took across the country. Um, It was a a horse that had really been more neglected than anything else. Right. But But I um,
1: can imagine that even through that um, neglect, there would be an element of um, trauma
2: Yes, he was so. So, the first time Andrea sent me a picture of him, she said, I found my horse. This is the horse that's going to go across the country. And I said, Andrea, you are kidding me. That horse cannot make it across the country. He is skin and bones. And she said, No, no, I've got six weeks. I'm going to feed him up. He's going to be great. And I said, but have you looked at him? His neck is put on upside down. His back is longer than anything. And he looks like a giraffe on stilts. Oh, poor darling. (laughs) Yeah. And Andrew said, no, no, he's going to be great. You have to trust me on this. He's going to be wonderful. (laughs) And to give her credit, um, he was he was amazing. She fed him up. He was really healthy. And then while we did the journey, he got stronger and stronger and more and more fit and better looking all the way across the country.
1: I can imagine he would look like a total different horse um, yeah. by the end of it. <laughs> did you include, I can't remember now, I have I have watched the um, movie, both of the movies, but did you include any clips or um photos of them at the very beginning and kind of like their start point
2: you know we didn't mm-hmm. and that was actually a really well-considered factor um everybody likes the dramatic before rags and to riches story yeah. and the Everybody wants to hear how horrible it was before it got better. And we really didn't want to emphasize that part of the story. Mm -hmm. We wanted to emphasize, you know, that the horses can go from where they are to getting better, but not put a lot of emphasis on how bad it was because we didn't want that kind of a sensational story. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we just didn't have cameras down there. taking any footage (laughs) six weeks before we started so there was a a purely logistical part about that as well
1: yeah totally that's um really interesting to to hear that you had considered that part and I think it's that's really lovely as well because I think sometimes that before after shock factor can also be used um in not such a great way Mm -hmm.
2: It felt like it was unnecessary for the story we had to tell. Yeah. And it was an interesting thing for you and I to talk about in this podcast, but it wasn't necessary for the movie itself.
0: Yes.
2: And ultimately I was really happy with how that whole journey turned out. It was far, far harder than either of us anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the horses were amazing and really developed a huge amount of trust in ways that um blew my
1: mind
2: really in what ways
1: what did you what were some of the parts that really like gave you goosebumps
2: well the criticism I often get on the movie is that I didn't show enough bad things that happened right and The thing that I have to say is the reason we didn't have a lot of bad things to show is because there weren't a lot of bad things that happened. Yeah. What we were able to do is read when muscles got a little bit tight and go, okay, let's change the plan now before the horse has to go into an all out fight to save their life. Yeah. Um, And let's go ahead and read the situation before there's anything really dramatic to catch on camera. Mm, yeah and this was always my goal it was the thing that I wanted to do but I didn't actually know if it was possible and so on the one hand if I really messed up and we had huge explosions it would make for a great fantastic thrilling movie and on the (laughs) other hand I actually felt like I was more successful because we just didn't have any of that to catch on camera
1: yeah that's beautiful that's kind of like that's the goal isn't it to to not have the big flashy um (laughs) um, movie movie material sort of stuff
2: (laughs) so you know this horse that I had which we named Apollo he was supposedly very very dangerous and um by the end of the film I was riding him and I was riding him with no halter and There wasn't any I'm going to buck you off moment. There was never a a threat between us. He never showed that dangerous side that had been reported.
1: Mm, And that's probably because you'd never shown him any any danger.
2: That was what I thought, you know, and and I think the bonding experience we had is we covered a lot of miles together and then also the really careful awareness of where – I was in space and time around him and when I moved and when I didn't move really taught him to trust me without having to have any big explosions.
1: Yeah. So could you give like a little bit of a picture for those that haven't seen any of your work or the movies yet? Could you give a little bit of a picture of what that would look like?
2: Uh, About... What what would look like? Give me a little more
1: specific. I guess like working with him and um and the journey and being able to read him so that it didn't, um so that things didn't head south. Um and I guess what you would do or could do in those moments.
2: So really simply, the basic premise of freedom based training is that horses communicate with each other by. Moving their own bodies around each other or by causing the other horse to move.
0: Mm.
2: And in most training, we only think about the second one, causing the other being to move. But in freedom based training, I really focus a lot on what does the horse think about my personal choices, whether I decide to be on their left side or their right side, whether I decide to be touching them or far away from them. And Do I have feel and timing to make those kinds of choices around them in a way that piques their interest and their curiosity? And they start to trust me enough that when I do start asking them to move their body in directions, they have an already built in trust for my decision making capabilities. Mm. So what we did on the beginning of the Costa Rica trip is we actually had a good friend of ours with a mare, a really beautiful, emotionally stable, well-trained mare who was our pack horse, and she led the way. And we had two geldings, and so the idea was the pretty girl was going to lead the way across the country, (laughs) and the two boys would follow.
1: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds like a good storyline <laughs> in the South.
2: Um, it meant that we didn't have to force them to cross the country. They yeah. followed her.
1: Mm.
2: And then, as they followed her, we made really good personal choices around them. So they started to think these people are smart. I want to be with them. I want to do what they want to do. And then, over the days and weeks that we traveled, we started putting in more and more input about whether they should be on the left side of the trail or the right side of the trail or whether they should slow down or speed up. Um, mm. But we only added those parts of it as we felt like they could say yes to us. Mm, so that you didn't get that no. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And how did you find it? Um different to like having that halter on and having to kind of like be going a a certain place how did you find that different to um like working with marina where where you didn't have an agenda i guess
2: um honestly it was a lot easier because it was more similar to The speed of training I'm accustomed to. So Mm -hmm. my whole life, I've been a horse trainer. And there's a certain expectation that you think the horse will learn this and that in that amount of time. And what I found is when we had a halter and a lead on and we were covering a lot of ground, the speed of training was much faster. Horses learned things much more quickly.
1: Mm -hmm. With
2: Myrna, without all of the constant movement, um, I found that the point A to point B took a lot longer. Yeah. And so I named the movies Taming Wild, not because I was taming a wild horse, but because I had to tame that wild streak inside of me uh-huh. that wanted everything now. Well, I had never
1: thought of it that way, but that I can totally relate to that.
2: <laughs> yep. Yeah. so... When we have something, some extrinsic motivators, everything goes faster. When Mm. you do what I did in the first movie and you take away the extrinsic motivators, the horse really has to want to do everything. And sometimes they just don't want to. Yeah. And if they don't want to do the thing you have in mind, you have to figure out how to break it down into a small enough piece that they say, yeah, I'll try that. Hmm.
1: And that could look different depending on the horse or the
2: situation. Yes, absolutely different for every horse. They're all unique.
1: How do you find um, working with horses that are, like, I really love Chrome because he kind of has this, and you probably felt it when you were with him as well. um, He's kind of like, wow life is amazing what do you want me to do like he's that he's that type of horse but then um I had a little uh wow he was a wild stallion from here in New Zealand in the Kaimanuas and he had a very stoic um nature and very internal and even like watching him with the other horses he does as little as he has to do (laughs) and i found that so much harder because
2: i had to go slow yep you had to tame that wild streak in yourself that wanted things faster i did (laughs) chrome is really fun for that reason i think chrome is a really good example of a, a horse that we have purpose-bred as human beings to be the kind of horse we like playing with. Mm. And so that's really fun. When you take a horse from the wild, you have a horse that's been purpose-bred to survive.
1: Yes, and Tama was very (laughs) good at
2: surviving. (laughs) Yep. So they're not necessarily going to prioritize the kind of things that we think are fun as people. They're going to prioritize what's going to make sure that gets them safely to tomorrow and the next meal and next year
1: yeah yeah and it was quite funny with Tama uh there's photos of him from when he was in the wild and he was always the captions under the photos are a pregnant mare (laughs) (laughs) so (laughs) you can tell his his survival skills were quite up there
2: and yet you know what in winter time he was warmer than all of his friends because he had calories to burn exactly (laughs) yeah (laughs) so how
1: how can we like I don't even know quite what I'm asking but um working with those types of horses that um that don't have the same agenda that aren't purpose-bred to want to to do things and to be moving how can we work with them better in a way that because often what I see is people put a lot of pressure on those horses and then they're the horses that end up um pinning their ears back and kind of having this um angry type of demeanor about them
2: yeah um The system that I have developed, which works with all kinds of horses, but it was developed originally with Mustangs in mind. So the more wild type horse was how I developed it. Mm. And that idea is that you find what their comfort zone is. And from their comfort zone, you find the thing is that's right on the edge of the comfort zone. The thing that this is maybe I'm not sure I want to do that, but maybe I'll try it. And then the key is to stop soon enough that they kind of wish you hadn't stopped. Mm. So you try a little bit of something new and then you go back to what's in their comfort zone and they go, I was just starting to enjoy that. Why did we go back to something that's boring and familiar? Mm. And you advance and retreat like that until they start getting a little bit of a, um, a taste for wanting what they don't know yet. Yeah, the problem that people have is we ask for too much too soon. And if we overdo it, the horse goes, oh, my God, I'm so glad that's over. I never really want to do it again. Mm. And if every day you push them that hard, they start, you know, pinning their ears a lot and saying, God, every day you show up and you make me do things I don't want to do. And that becomes the mental pattern. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Now it's a little easier with some of our purpose bred horses because we can push them into something they don't want to do. And because of their breeding and their genetics and what we have bred into them, they actually come around and they go, actually, I changed my mind. That was way more fun than I thought it was going to be. And so you can get away with a lot more pressure, I find, on horses that have been bred for pressure from people yeah that's interesting
1: I was I had um some people here yesterday and um and the lady was chatting to me about her I think they were eventers and um she said that if her horses had a day off they would kind of be like <laughs> like where are you what happened to you yesterday sort of thing
2: <laughs> <laughs> I will say you can do the same thing with a mustang You just have to be careful that you build it up a lot more sequentially Mm. because you can't bully them into enjoying things the same way you can bully a domestic horse.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I learned that too. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That is so cool. And so also like with the – I know we chatted a little bit last time about the adding in the movement as well and how you found that – and I guess linking it through into what is almost natural for them to have that movement and that traveling um, somewhere um, built
2: into the nervous system. I think that um, horses are designed to do a lot of miles that's bred into them genetically. And the thing that happens in a horse herd is they experience a lot of different experiences together. They see a lot of different things. They travel across different terrain um, and all of those v- variations of experience that they have together as they cover miles creates a much more dynamic and fast bond between partners than if we're going around the same paddock every day.
1: Yeah. You see a lot more different things. I, was thinking about um you know like some of the the godfathers of the horsemanship and um I've read about how like Ray Hunt and the likes and how they would be very quickly um out you know and working the horses on the big ranches and bringing in cattle and and I kind of just thought well it's although it's It's same but different, I guess, but same in the sense that they're going out and traveling and moving those miles together and and having the experiences and and up to the rider to be able to show them uh, that they can make some good decisions.
2: Exactly. And there is a a danger in it. If you make bad decisions, you know, it it can get dangerous out there. Mm. But I think for people who really want to challenge themselves to say, you know, what kind of horseman am I? What kind of trainer am I? Um, Putting yourself in situations where you go, you know, I know you're young, I know you're green, but we're going to go out and experience some things. And I promise you, I'm going to put you in good situations. It's actually a really fun challenge. Yeah. That's neat. So, you know, that's really what I got to do in that second movie. It wasn't exactly freedom-based training, but I took all of the principles that I'd learned in the first movie and I tried to apply them as best I could while also just getting out in the world and covering ground.
1: Mm, and what a beautiful experience. Yeah. <laughs> and then so now you are filming your third movie which has a different it's different again
2: yes it is well the third movie actually was the movie I wanted to make first but I wasn't ready to uh-huh um I was told that um I should really do that first movie with a stallion And because of the logistics of having fences that were appropriate and you know, all of the considerations that go into having a stallion, I decided not to do that. So I ended up doing the first movie with a mare Mm -hmm. who was pregnant, who ended up having a foal halfway through. Um, But the idea was how would it be different with the stallion? And then the other thing I wanted to find out was, um, what happens if you take a horse that's a little bit older? So in the first movie I started with Mirna, who was four years old when I got her. Yeah. And in this third movie, I've started with an eight year old stallion who lived eight years out on the range. I think he was a fairly successful band leader. Um, he's very sure of who he is. <laughs> and uh, the idea was to recreate that first movie with a different horse. Um, Different in that he's a stallion and different in that he's a little bit older than she was. Mm -hmm. Now, just because I can't do anything the easy way, I decided I needed a little contrast. And I decided I was also going to get a stallion that had been through severe trauma and abuse Mm.
0: and try and
2: do the same process with that stallion um, just to give a little compare and contrast. Wow. So. I ended up getting a retired bucking horse off of the bucking broncos circuit, rodeo circuit around the US.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, he is also eight years old and um, I quite honestly bit off more than I know how to chew. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a good way to grow, right? <laughs> yeah um (laughs) it was supposed to take a year we are headed into our second year now and um let's just say i'm learning more than i ever anticipated wow um mainly with that second one the abuse case Mm -hmm. um he i don't have the mileage like i did in the second movie across costa rica um this horse atlas who he's the the retired Fucking horse yeah um he you know i can't get a halter on him
0: mm. um
2: he's terrified of everything and he came with a history of attacking people Wow. so really don't want to put him in a corner and put him in that situation it's really hard
1: to convince a horse that has been pushed to that point of fighting for their lives that you are something different to what they've experienced yeah
2: and you know in hindsight I I wish that I had had an even better situation where there was you know I have big paddocks but ultimately I think what I've learned so far is any horse that comes from a history of trauma and abuse Mm. I would put them in a situation where they get to move a lot because I think the slow, steady walking motion that is genetically inherent in horses is one of the best things you can do to help a horse that comes from a traumatic past process that and develop into whoever they can become. Mm.
0: Um,
2: So in hindsight, my paddocks are not as big or as, um, as generous as I would like them to be. Um, I also was hoping that the two stallions could live together and it turns out they're like oil and water. So, oh. um, they fight quite a lot. Oh, and, no. uh, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't work. Um, so they live next to each other. Um, so there's a lot of things about this third movie that, you know, I've had to sort of learn the, the hard way. Um, But it's fascinating. And I'm still loving the process of freedom based training, even though it's a lot harder this time around. Mm. Um, I have a Patreon group. So people who are interested, I do a weekly update video on what's happening with Ari and Atlas and uh, my struggles and, and trials and tribulations and also my successes and all the things that are going really well with them.
1: Yeah, that's super. And so where are you at and how are you finding it with the, um, the Mustang stallion?
2: So he is really interesting. Um, I love him. He is very straightforward, very clear, not difficult at all, mm-hmm. except for the fact that he is one of the slowest learners I have ever met in my life (laughs) (laughs) and I I say that actually with a great amount of appreciation yeah because the thing that goes along with slow learning horses is they are reliable when Mm. they do learn something it's almost impossible to convince them that they haven't learned it so whatever it is that they have they have a hundred and (laughs) twenty percent and you can't convince them that they ever didn't know that
1: (laughs) so yeah that's where you have to hope that they've been taught the thing uh if it if it's a horse that has already learned some things you have to hope it's they've been taught the right
2: things Exactly. So I'm really pleased with what I've I've worked with with Ari. I would say that our progress is far slower than I anticipated, but he is probably my favorite horse I've ever had. Mm. Um, He is my rock. Um, I can't wait to see him every morning. He just feels like the best friend I could ever have. It's going to take us a really long time before we achieve the kind of progress I made with my mare in the first movie. Mm. But, you know, I'm all for the slow winding road. I want to smell the roses along the way and soak up the journey. And oh, he's fun. He's so much fun for me.
1: He sounds awesome.
2: (laughs) Dependable. I love that. Yeah, he's very dependable. Huh. So, you know, I've I've got a big challenge on my hands. I don't know how long it's gonna take me to film this third movie. Um I, I figure it's done when I have some sort of reasonable conclusion to wrap it up in a bow and tie it off and start the editing. But until then, we're just filming every week and seeing what happens along the way.
1: Ah, oh, that's so neat. So weekly <laughs> weekly kind of updates and Yep. How neat. What um like do you think that um, with the with the bucking stallion Atlas, um, mm-hmm. doing those miles like uh, like what you did in the second movie so adding that in, um, yeah how could you set up a situation like that i'm just kind of thinking i guess like if somebody had a horse that could benefit from that how could you do that if you didn't if you couldn't catch them how could you set up that sort of situation
2: so this is with atlas Um, I've actually started a a hybrid system where I'm not doing completely freedom-based training because what I found would happen is he would go into a state of freeze and he would be very, very still either eating hay and not ever looking up from his hay Mm -hmm. or falling asleep for hours at a time. And he literally would not move at all. Wow. And then a bird would fly over the paddock and make a loud noise. And he would just about fall down out Mm -hmm. of terror from the noise that the bird made.
0: Yeah, and
2: he was just such an emotional rack between his freeze and his flight and his freeze and his flight, and I realized I had to do something for him. And I had him in with one of my geldings, but unfortunately the, his, the geldings that he got along with also really liked to stand around and sleep and do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't helpful. <laughs> so I ended up um, – coming up with a very slow, gentle kind of round pen work where, um, I can sit in the middle and drink a cup of tea and Alice can take a walk around me and we try and do at least half an hour of that a day. Mm. And he is, um, he's very, very sensitive and I have to make sure that I don't put too much pressure on him or he does get aggressive. Um, but I find if he can walk for at least half an hour a day, then the random things in the environment don't scare him anymore. Mm, and And that, that that felt like a really important part of quality of life for him
1: yeah that's great do you think it's because he's like bringing his mind back into his body
2: Yes. I think that when he is allowed to freeze up and stand still, as he probably did for most of his life as a bucking horse, my guess is he was kept in small spaces by himself and then, you know, released into the arena with an electric cattle prod and a rope tight around his belly and then stuck back in a small space to freeze again. So, you know, he's had years and years and years of freeze and explode, freeze and explode. Yeah. Practicing that. And so, you know, by changing that dynamic and saying, you know, let's walk for half an hour, it put him into a different mind space where he could actually start to think. And when he could start to think, then stuff didn't surprise him all the time.
1: Mm, it's amazing. I was thinking back to, I had a um, a pony once who wow. had, had he'd had some sort of not great stuff go on in his um, past. And, um, I over quite a long period of time I finally had him at the point where I was able to ride and I was really lucky that a friend of mine had this beautiful bush track and it was very steep and um, well parts of it were and it was like kind of overgrown with ferns and vines and (laughs) branches and part of me was like what are you doing this is crazy (laughs) but The thing that really surprised me was he did it. And after that ride, just one ride, he was a completely different horse. And it's probably a little bit like what you're talking about. It was like that shared experience together. There's no way I could have, even if I'd set up pool noodles or something and walked him through them and had them brushing on his legs, I, I feel like we would have had to have done that like repetitively. Um, to get the same over a long period of time to get the same outcome as we got in one ride and I remember this one point where she was riding ahead of me and there was this branch that went across the track and it was at about knee height on the horses <laughs> and I watched her walk through and her horse just marches on through it and the, the branch like brushes along his legs and then kind of like whips back and I was like saw it coming towards my horse thinking he's just gonna explode and he just walked on through it and it brushed through his legs and out the other side and and
2: and we were alive (laughs) it's the perfect example of shared experiences that bond you together that's such a great story it was
1: amazing and yeah I just thought like there were points in our ride that I had to step up and be there for him and say, you know, we're going to be okay. We can do this. And then when there were times like that where I was thinking that I, <laughs> that we were going to die and he's like, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah.
2: And that's what I find is those shared experiences really do help the horse step up for you sometimes. Sometimes you're helping them, but sometimes they're helping you. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so lovely. I had an amazing experience when we were in one of the toughest jungle areas going across Costa Rica. Um, I got really bad vertigo and uh, I was walking because it was like knee deep mud most of the time. And we got to this incredibly steep hill and I looked up and I thought I can't do it. I am so tired. I can't mm. do it. And at that point Apollo walked past me and he paused right at his tail right next to my hand. Oh. And- I had been practicing holding onto his tail up hills and he just waited and he looked back and I hold onto his tail and he just marched me up the hill. Oh. And I swear he knew that I had nothing left. Aww. And he was there for me. He said, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take you up this one.
1: That is so lovely. Oh. <laughs> I'm getting all yeah. like goose pimply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a neat journey. Um, yeah. Well, I guess is there anything else that you want to chat about within that? And I don't know if you have time for a few questions from um, from some
2: people that had typed in or absolutely. I'm happy to answer some questions, and you know, I think that sort of to wrap this up, the the movies and the idea of freedom based training. You know, ultimately, I think that it is an interesting experimental way to train horses. But what it is more than that is it's a way to train people to read horses. Mm. And that's why I love it. And it's why I keep doing the next movie and, and adopting the next challenging horse, because every time I get stuck and I have to think, how do we work through this issue in front of me without reaching for a tool? Um, I learn to be a better horse person. I learn how okay. to break it down. I learn my feel. I learn my timing. And it just gets a little better every time I have to work through the next challenge in front of me.
1: Mm. And it, those things kind of cross over into life, don't they? I've found that as my personal journey with horses has um, grown and developed, I've become a better person <laughs> as well <laughs> in the rest of my life. <laughs>
2: oh I agree absolutely Ellie. yeah
1: well I'm just I've just brought up um a page and these were from when we did our first um our first chat but um I will just bring up one from Kim who said that um she watched you at Equidays with a little horse who was quite clearly asking for back scratching Um, Elsa mentioned the following day that it would have been inappropriate to scratch I want to understand why he wasn't being pushy about it was persistent but quite but quite polite Um, oh and then she says is self-soothing something all horses must learn or is relationship compromised if we help soothe so I think that's kind of you know that's something
2: that comes up at every clinic I teach Mm. and it's actually a really great question is self-soothing necessary Mm. um I think it is and and for this reason if your horse needs to get scratched it's great if you have time to do it but if you're in a situation where you don't have time And they don't know how to self-soothe. They will get more and more agitated and more and more upset because you cannot help them and they do not know how to help themselves. Mm. So I think it's really important to teach horses to self-soothe for all those times when we might not be able to help them. We don't have time. We're not close enough. We broke our arm. You know, any Mm. number of things can happen where we are unable to help them in that moment. And they need to be able to self-soothe in those moments.
1: Mm, So that would look like standing back and letting them explore. So in that situation, um, scratching themselves.
2: So um, that's one option, but I actually do something a lot more specific and that is um, I watch the horse's ears in terms of what they're thinking about. And when they want a scratch. They're usually very self-focused, which means the ears will kind of hang out to the sides usually. Mm. And what I'm looking for is that they think about something else briefly, Um, anything else. It really doesn't matter what. But as soon as they give me an ear flick, I will go ahead and scratch them. And they start feeling like the cue to the human to scratch me is to change my focus.
0: Yeah. And
2: so what happens is when they start cueing humans to scratch them by changing their focus, if the human doesn't have time to scratch them, they will do more and more focus changes trying to cue the human. And the more focus changes they do, the more they start thinking about other things and then they forget they were itchy.
1: <laughs> ah, interesting. So they've soothed <laughs> themselves by thinking about other things.
2: Exactly. Ah. So And it's sorry. really pretty simple to just wait. You know they want to be scratched. Mm. Just wait until an ear flicks. And once they get really good at that, maybe you wait until their ear flicks twice. And then when they're really good at that, maybe you wait until you, their ear flicks three times. And you build it up so they have more and more ability to self-soothe.
1: Yeah, and so um, waiting for that ear flick before you scratch them? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Mm.
2: So I am all for scratching them. I think it's great. But if you can get them to just change focus a little bit before you scratch them, you've planted the seeds so they will be able to self-soothe in the moments you're not able to help them.
1: Yeah, and then you can take that same principle through into anything, can't you?
2: Yes. I think Mm. that teaching a horse to think and change focus is the best thing you can do to teach them to manage their own emotions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's that they're afraid of, I don't know, a puddle or a plastic bag or (laughs) whatever it is, introducing a saddle.
2: Is that correct? Correct. What they end up doing is they end up learning how to advance and retreat their own focus. And mm-hmm. so something makes them nervous. They look at that plastic bag and they go, let me look at Ellie for a moment. She'll make me feel better. And then they'll go back and look at the plastic bag again. And then they'll say, okay, still feeling nervous. Let me look at Ellie again. And they'll go back and forth until they go, you know what? Plastic bag really doesn't make me nervous anymore. Mm. But if they hyperfixate on the plastic bag, they will get stuck long enough. They go, I got to run. I, I just can't stay here. I got to run away. Yeah, and so if we can teach them to advance and retreat their focus they learn how to manage the intensity of how they feel
1: oh I love that that's kind of got me thinking I can I was just kind of like staring as I'm sitting here talking I'm listening to you but staring out the window like feeling my mind going to all these different places of applying
2: this <laughs> And that is the great thing. The things that I've learned in freedom-based training are applicable in just about any type of training. Um, and it's the thing that I love to do in my online courses is talk to my students about. So this is what you would do if you have no tools at all. But if you have tools, here are some other ways you can apply the same theory, or the ways that you might change the theory to suit the tools that you have. Mm, yep,
1: that's fantastic. I need to. I need to do your course. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh that would be so much fun I'd love to do it with you yeah and that's the great thing about the online courses I actually do it with all of my students so I do all the homework that my students are doing and I'm doing it at my level with my horses while they're doing it at their level with their horses and it's a really fun shared experience oh, that sounds awesome yeah
1: because then you're not kind of being left to your own devices and um, it's easy to get lost I think
2: yeah yeah in any learning process.
1: Yes, uh, we
2: like community. We are communal creatures, horses and people both.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is very true. Do you have time for one more, Elsa? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, I saw a headline, this is from Wendy. She says I saw a headline of Elsa's a while ago that read Alternatives to Know. I'm particularly interested to hear her elaborate, especially working with unhandled horses.
2: So when horses say no, they express it with fight or flight. And when they go to fight or flight, we usually need to have some sort of a tool to manage that. We need a halter or a pocket full of food rewards or you know a close, small fenced area to manage the fight or flight that they feel. Hmm. Um, we want them to think of what their alternatives are to saying no. So when they get a little bit uncomfortable, um, they might say, maybe, maybe I can do that. Maybe I can't. And maybe it looks like freeze. They just get real still. Their ears mm-hmm. stop moving. Their eyes stop moving. And most people think of freeze just as in the extreme of completely shut down. I think there's a lot of really functional types of freeze the horse can use where they go, Maybe, I'm not sure about that yet. That's such a good point, yeah. (laughs) And from there, that's a pretty reasonable place for us to have a conversation with the horse and convince them that, you know, saying yes is going to be okay. And when a horse says yes, what they do is they express thinking. We've talked about that with the ears moving.
0: Yes.
2: They express yielding, which is where they make room for you to be with them.
0: Mm. And
2: they express playing, so playing is, um, and, and I want to be specific here, playing is not the way horses play necessary. Playing has to be okay for both partners. So with humans, play is really quite gentle. And it looks a lot like curiosity. It looks like interest. Um, mutual grooming is a kind of play where you kind of push into each other's space and it feels good. Mm. So when a horse says yes to what you ask them, they're going to show it in thinking yielding or playing and so we want to teach horses that thinking yielding playing or even freeze are really good alternatives to saying no um, fight and flight those are their instinctual defense patterns and we don't really want them to feel like saying no to people is their best option um I'm not going to do that through force in freedom-based training. I'm going to do that really, really gently and slowly. But I want the horse to find all the alternatives to saying no.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they're kind of higher up their list of of, um, options than than just saying no. Yeah.
2: And, you know, you'll relate to this because you have children. Um, When I had uh, my daughter, when she was little, I actually banned the entire family from saying no. I didn't want my baby to learn the word no. Um, mm. Totally backfired on me. <laughs> 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 no was still her first word.
1: Uh, <laughs> I think that's what happens. We rebel against things that uh, that we're not allowed at all, huh? <laughs> yep.
2: Um, but I realized that no is very powerful because no stops everything. Okay, so when a child or a horse says no everything stops for a second. Nobody really knows what to do. Mm. And I th- the same thing happens um, for most people when the horse goes to flight or they go to fight against you. We have an instinct where we go, I don't know what to do with this. And we just stop. Yeah. And that, unfortunately, is very reinforcing for horses. So we mm. have to be careful that we don't reinforce their no behavior by stopping because that's the instinct. It's also why it works so well. yeah. So if we want them to say alternatives to no, if we want them to say yes or we want them to say maybe, we actually have to learn to stop when they say yes and stop when they say maybe. Take the pressure off Mm. when they give us the things that we want.
1: Mm, It's that learning to pause.
2: Learning to pause, yeah. What happens in society, and I see this with both children and horses, is when they say yes. We get really excited and we just steamroll right over the top of what they want.
1: We say, "What more can you give us?" <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> you would really love. Um, so, my partner and I, we went along to this um, seminar evening seminar with a with a man called Nathan Wallace, and he is a uh, a child development um I don't know like coach speaker um he's probably got professional names (laughs) as well before his (laughs) own name but um (laughs) but I won't go into that part but what um what my partner and I really like we learned so much about uh I guess how to work with the the developing brain and the different stages and um and and yeah, that just links right through into working with the horses there as well.
2: Yep, it really does. And there's so much good information out there. I think most of us need to be confronted with a little bit of a problem before we go seeking out the really good information that's out there. But um, it's exciting when you start to scratch the surface and you go, oh, people have studied this. Yeah. this is real stuff.
1: Yeah, and yeah. I found
2: a lot of my inspirations for freedom-based training has actually come from human psychology.
1: Yes, it's incredible. It, <laughs> part of the um, part of the work that he was talking about was like that whole thing with with saying like, give us more, and um, you know, like our child is learning the alphabet, alphabet and. Um, they get ABC and then we were like that's great what comes next (laughs) and (laughs) he he linked it through into he talked about like um anxiety and depression and um this is kind of getting a little bit like deep and heavy but I think it's probably a topic that maybe it needs to be talked about because maybe it will stop us a little bit but even linking through into um teen suicides is because of that pressure that we put on um kids and and also horses in this case um yeah where we're never just okay with what is in the moment
2: yeah and that is that is understanding feel and timing if you know when to pause you can nurture all of the best feelings for a horse or a child. Mm. Um, if you don't know when to pause, it gets really overwhelming. Yeah. And the more overwhelming it is, the more you're going to have to rely on extrinsic motivators of rewards and punishments to manage the feelings that come up. Yeah.
1: Mm. That's <laughs> so
2: cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's fascinating stuff oh it really is so fascinating I'm having to hold myself back from from, <laughs> from not like diving into <laughs> topics too deeply otherwise we might be here all day <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to learn to pause right now too <laughs> oh, that is super Elsa um I think that I will leave it there and not um, ask any more uh, questions. Perfect,
2: we will pause on a high note.
1: I think so. It seems like a fitting place to wrap things up. Um, But before we go, uh, where can people find you, your movies, um, your courses, and the ability to work with you and, and learn more?
2: So the best place to go is tamingwilds.com. That'll give you all the links to Patreon and Facebook and Vimeo where the movies are, or you can order discs from me as well. Um, but everything's gathered there at tamingwilds.com. That's the easiest place to go. Okay. And, uh, hopefully when, uh, we get back to a little bit more normal in the world i'll be traveling again both to europe and new zealand and australia to do clinics but again all that will be posted on my website when those tours get up and running
1: uh super cool great i'm looking forward to it especially the new zealand part i
2: did hear that Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> awesome i yeah. look forward to seeing you again ali when yeah. our paths cross
1: yes thank you so much for your time today i really really appreciate it and i hope that people can take away some bits and pieces from our chat today and apply it to
2: their own work with their horses Absolutely, me too. We've got a good community of horse people in the world now. I think that the more we can connect and share our good ideas, the better it all gets. Ah, oh, yes.
1: This podcast was proudly brought to you by Finesse Equestrian. For free videos and articles, head on over to finesseequestrian.com. You can also find me on facebook or youtube under finesse equestrian training or on instagram under ali a o'brien if you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to subscribe so you are the first to listen in to screenshot and share on social media and rate and leave us a review so you can do your part in helping us to
0: reach more horses and people